Please turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 9, Proverbs chapter 9, and in a minute I'm going to read to you uh, verses 7 through 10, Proverbs 9, verses 7 through 10, and did I ever tell you that I coached a basketball team in Mongolia? Yes. Uh, they, they had asked me, I'd coached at the high school level when um, I was here in the United States before I went to Mongolia, just a small team, you know, just the volunteers. We didn't even have cuts because we needed every guy to come out to practice. And then we had to grab a couple other guys to make five on five for practice. So, I mean, we, uh, we just were scraping the bottom of the barrel. So I always had to keep things really simple at, with this high school team. You know, you go over here and then you pass the ball. Anyway, long story short, I got to Mongolia. They heard that I had a experience as a basketball coach, whatever that meant. And they said, you, we want you to coach this college team. And uh, small college, don't, don't, don't think like, uh, you know, Kentucky or not, not, not anything like that. But just coach this college team. We have a tournament coming up. We want you to coach. I said, great. You know, so we got a gymnasium. We got the guys together to practice. And for a day or two before, I'm thinking through some plays. And, you know, these are new guys, so I don't want to overwhelm them with a lot. And besides, I don't really know what I'm doing anyway. I'm not that great of a coach. So just keep it simple, right? So I, I had a pretty simple, to me, pretty simple play where you run across the, 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 the key. You set a, a screen on the other side. If you don't know what these terms are, don't worry. Step one. Step two, you run over. The other guy runs to this side. And step three, he gets the ball. Okay, three steps. Step four, he shoots it. Okay, real simple, right? So I start going through these steps, and they say, no, 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 this is way too complex. we got to have at least two steps. And then I realized, you know, these guys didn't want to really learn anything. They just wanted to play pickup basketball. And that was great. And we lost the tournament, and that was the end of my coaching career. <laughs> Sometimes I think that things get complex too quickly, and we get overwhelmed. And I know some of you have come to me, you've said, I'm reading the Proverbs, and I don't understand so much of it. And I do, I, do, I get that. I, I understand. Let me help you. Uh, let me give you some advice about decomplexifying the Proverbs, making them less complex. The first thing I would encourage you to do is focus on the Proverbs that you do understand. In any given chapter, there are Proverbs, frankly, I don't understand them. I, I don't. But there's more that I do understand, and those are the ones that I focus on. So I read the whole chapter, but maybe only half or three-fourths, I, I get it. And then you know what? It seems like most days the Holy Spirit brings out one proverb to me, or maybe two, that he wants me to focus on, and invariably a life situation comes up that that proverb applies to. Now, you know who does that? The Holy Spirit does that for us. Draws our attention to the verse, arranges our circumstances so we get to practice it. Second thing, uh, uh, so second thing I encourage you to do as you read the Proverbs is just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, to see the pieces of the Proverbs that you need for that day. And uh, let me encourage you to continue reading. Some people, they read through the Proverbs about 12 times a year. They just start next month, February 1st, with Proverbs 1 again. And the more you read the Proverbs, the more understandable they, be they become. I believe that. I've, I've seen that in my own life. And finally, there's a lot about the Proverbs that you will understand better as you gain life experience. Those of you that are 50 are going to have a different experience reading the Proverbs than those who are 15. And even this past week, I was reading Proverbs 27.3. I put it in my notes because I didn't memorize it, but wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who can stand before envy? And all of a sudden, boom, light bulb goes on my mind. That was my problem. <laughs> 
I, you know, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have seen that verse that way. But I understood that envy, uh, the destructiveness of envy. And uh, we've been warned here at our church uh, 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 multiple times to be careful about envy. So anyway, my, my, my point in that is keep reading. Don't, don't give up. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you focus on that verse or two that you need for that day. Uh, understand as you continue to read, you'll come to a better understanding. And then with more life experience, you're also going to gain a better understanding of the Proverbs. Today, in order to decomplexify the Proverbs, if we can use that word, I want to look at Proverbs 9, verses 7 through 10. Let me read them to you now. Proverbs 9, 7 says this, He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame. And he that rebuketh a wise man getteth himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Again, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. In an effort to decomplexify the Proverbs today, I'd like to just take this proverb, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding, and talk about some details of the Proverbs that will help you with all the Proverbs and show you how they apply to this one in particular. Let me divide it up in three sections. The first is we're going to take a look at Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry. The second thing we're going to do is try to give you a, a working definition for the fear of the Lord. We're going to try to answer that question, what is the fear of the Lord? And then third, I want to give you an illustration from the Bible, a story, a narrative, a, a series of events from the Bible that illustrates for us the fear of the Lord. So let's start here with this idea of, of Hebrew poetry. Now, I, I came to realize this week in particular, as I was talking with one of you, um, I love poetry. I, I've always enjoyed English poetry. You know, I, I, my wife will tell you I've got a few books in particular, authors and an anthology or two. Uh, poetry I enjoy. I just get it off the shelf and I read it and I find joy in reading poetry. But I realize that most of you are not like that. I, I can recall a time about 10 years ago now, I was doing some teaching and the English teacher was trying to get through this poetry section in her literature material and I said, hey, let me come in. I, I said, the poems they picked out, your literature book picked out, are just garbage. Let me come in and tell them some real poems, some poems that really are good poetry, and uh, we'll just spark an interest in poetry. So I went in, she gave me the whole 45 minutes. I had things prepared. I had particular poems. I had particular things about those poems. I came in. I was energetic. I was enthusiastic, and uh, the students were falling asleep. They just don't get it. And if that's you, you know, you and poetry just don't mix, then you're probably at the same stage that my Mongolian basketball team was. Coach, this is too complicated. Uh, but let me help you a, a little bit about uh, uh, poetry. In, in, in um, Hebrew poetry, the key in Hebrew poetry is not rhythm, it's not rhyme, it's called parallelism. Most of the Proverbs that you're going to read have two parts. Some of them have three. Most of them have two parts. There's a part A and there's a part B. And the relationship of those two parts to each other is helpful to know if you're going to understand the proverb. So in this case, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's part A. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. That's part B. Part A, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Part B, the knowledge of the holy 
is understanding. Now there's four basic types. There's, you know, if you want to get go deep, you can have whole books they wrote about this, but there are four basic types of parallelism in Hebrew poetry that I want to share with you today. Four basic types, and then I'm going to tell you which type this illustrates and, and how it helps us understand the passage. The first type of parallelism in Proverbs is called synonymous parallelism, synonym. That is, you've got part A and part B, and they're basically a restatement. Part B is a restatement of part A. They say basically the same thing. Sometimes you use synonyms, sometimes different thoughts, but basically the same thing, synonymous parallelism. By the way, there's no quiz, so don't worry, okay? You don't have to take a quiz at the end. But it would help if you wrote this down as you're reading through. It might open up your eyes to other truths in the Proverbs. Synonymous parallelism. There's a second that's called antithetic parallelism. That's where you've got two thoughts, and they may say the same thing, but they come at it from different directions. Because if they said different things, they would contradict each other. They don't contradict each other. They just say it in two ways from two different directions. Let me give you an example that you know. A Proverbs uh, chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. I mean, they say the same thing, but from two different directions. One is positive. Trust the Lord. The other is negative. Don't trust your own heart. And so that's called antithetic parallelism. There are some times that there's emblematic parallelism. Emblematic parallelism is when part A gives you a picture and then part B says, oh, and that's what this is like. So for example, an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. That's from Proverbs chapter 25. An earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. You can imagine a lady with gold earrings and it complements her countenance. Your eyes are drawn to the beauty that's there. And, and then the, the, uh, Solomon says, the, the writer of Proverbs says, this is the same thing as a rebuker on an obedient ear. So there's emblematic parallelism. The fourth one is called synthetic parallelism. By the way, I borrowed these. If you want the book I borrowed them from, I'll give you the title. But I borrowed these. Synthetic parallelism simply adds to the previous line. There's a part A, and then part B adds information that builds on part A. Part B builds on part A. So here's another one that you know well, Proverbs 3, 6. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Part A, in all thy ways acknowledge him. Let's build on that. Part B says, God will do this for you. So here, Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Of those four types, synonymous, antithetic, emblematic, and synthetic parallelism, this one is synonymous parallelism. This verse uses synonymous parallelism. The second line restates the first line using new terms. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. There's a connection there between wisdom and understanding. They're not exactly the same thing, but they're synonyms, near synonyms for each other. These two words show up also in Psalm 111, verse 10. Let me read it to you, but write that down in your notes. Psalm 111, verse 10, say this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. And there you see again, understanding and wisdom, they're parallel to each 
other. So here's my point. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. If we are going to fear the Lord, we have to know something about God. And what we have to know about God must be true. Or we will not attain wisdom, and we will not get understanding. Consider that the most important thoughts that we have are those thoughts that we think about God. I'm going to take a little digression here. Yesterday, Mondo and I were discussing the fact that the National Football League is rigged. <laughs> we know this from the Super Bowl logo. Yeah. Now, let, let's put that on the importance level. Is that a 10 or is that a 0? That's about 1. <laughs> Don't bet on football because it's rigged. right? That's like betting on professional wrestling. There's a lot of things we think about, a lot of things we talk about that don't really matter. But what you think about God, how you perceive God is up there at 10. It literally controls your attitudes. It literally monitors your heart. And because it controls your attitudes, monitors your heart, it's the glasses through which you perceive everything. Or those of you that are a little bit... Uh, uh, it's the contact lenses through which you perceive everything. It affects our behavior. What we think of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. Therefore, what we think about God is very important. Not just that we think about God like, I will, let me think what God might be like. But more importantly, that we agree that the God whom we are thinking about reveals himself in the Bible. You say, well, how do I get to know this God? Well, you're not going to be able to go to a location and talk with him directly. You're not going to be able to hear him on television or some podcast. It's through his word that he reveals himself to us. And let me tell you some important things that all of us need to believe about God. The first is that God exists. Now, I know this seems fundamental, but again, I'm trying to decomplexify it here. I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. And I can, I, I'm meeting more and more people who don't even believe God exists. Some of them tell me, and I want to just deal with this briefly. Some of them tell me that everything we're experiencing is just an illusion. It's not even reality. And so there's really nothing to worry about. And I say, yes, but there also is no meaning. If it's, if it's the same as a computer game, if it's the same as that hologram that you're seeing, three-dimensional hologram, then there is no meaning to life. How, why is there an epidemic of anxiety and hopelessness in our society? The root cause is we don't even believe God exists. There are some people who, who uh, believe that we have a reality, but that God is not the one who created it. Maybe they believe, or maybe they say they're agnostic. Maybe they say, well, I believe that there's some higher power, but what he's doing, I don't know. He's out there somewhere. That is not the God of the Bible either. And I've had some Christians tell me recently, in fact, this came up this week as I was talking on the phone with someone in another state, had some Christians tell me recently that yes, they believe God exists, and yes, they believe that God created us, but they don't think that God pays them much attention. 
he's uh, got more important things to do. In fact, one of them said, do you really think God thinks you're important enough to pay attention to you? I said, no, 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 you're missing it. I'm not important. We serve an infinite God. He can pay attention to seven plus billion people all at the same time and not stretch his abilities. Now, I can't hardly pay attention to two of you at one time. This morning, one person asked me to handle this. Another person told me about this problem. All needed to be dealt with. I'm not complaining. I'm struggling, you know. What do I deal with first? Do you know what? God never says, what do I deal with first? (laughs) Whose prayer is more important? God never does that. He can take it all in at once. It's not that I'm important. It's that our God is amazing. That's why he pays attention to us. And the folks that I've met, the Christians that I've met, I think you struggle with this the most. They've been, they feel as if, they feel as if they've been abandoned by God. They, they feel as if God's betrayed them in some way. God sort of cast them aside. And they're shocked that I would think that God cares about them because they certainly don't feel that way. Well, you know what? Our flesh and our enemy is so good at twisting our emotions to make us feel things that don't line up with reality. And if you feel that God has, if you're a Christian, you know you're saved, you know you have eternal life, you know your sins are forgiven, but you feel as if God has has abandoned you or betrayed you or he's cast you aside, let me remind you what the Bible says. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. God is faithful. What's our verse for the year? Faithful is he who calleth you, who also will do it. And yes, your flesh wants you to just sit in the corner and fold your arms and say, I, nobody is going to help me. But God stands ready. He's holding out his hand. Reach out to him. Take his hand. He hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. The most important thoughts we can think are our thoughts about God. And there is a God. He exists. And he cares deeply. He cares deeply about us. He knows the very details of the thoughts that go on in our heads and the feelings that we have in our hearts. And again, you say, well, there's 7 billion plus. I don't think God, our God is amazing. We're going to look in a minute. He is infinite. You can't stretch his capabilities. God cares about us. And here's the other thing I want to remind you of. Hebrews tells us, Hebrews eleven six tells us that he rewards those that diligently seek him. He rewards those who diligently seek him. Are you seeking God? Because if you are, he will reward you. I have a testimony I'm hoping to play uh, during an audio clip of a testimony I'm hoping to play uh, next Sunday morning during the uh, Sunday School Assembly, a Jewish man living in South Africa who came to Jesus Christ. And the first step in that journey, I mean, there was a lot of steps. The first step in in his journey was when he said, if there's really a God of the Bible, remember this is a Jewish man. So, you know, he's sort of a secular Jew. If there's really a God of the Bible, would you reveal yourself to me? And guess what God did? He revealed himself. Are you searching for God? Because God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So let's get back to this fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, again, Step one in this fear of the Lord is you must believe, you must be absolutely convinced, you must live your life acknowledging that God exists, that God created all things, and that God has a definite interest in you. He's not abandoned you, he's not busy, he's not 
over in Ukraine trying to solve that issue and he doesn't have time for you. That's step one in the fear of the Lord, knowledge of the holy. But there's a second step, the fear of the Lord, and again, I'm borrowing this from a textbook. The fear of the Lord means to acknowledge his superiority over humans. We... We like to think either that God is so far away that he's unapproachable. And I'm telling you this morning, God is always approachable through the blood of Jesus Christ. Or we like to think he's so close that he's almost like our buddy. God is not our buddy. He's God. And when we acknowledge his superior, superiority over us and recognize his deity, we respond in awe. We respond in humility. We respond in worship. We respond in love. We respond in love. We respond in obedience and a host of other things. But I want to focus on a few of those this morning. The first is that we respond when we recognize God's superiority over us. We respond in awe and irreverence. Let's just take a minute, two minutes maybe, and think about some of God's infinite attributes, infinite characteristics that blow our human minds because our minds are only so big. I can only fit so much in my mind. And the older I get, it feels like to put anything new in my mind, I've got to forget something else. I'm, I'm finite. There's a limit to my knowledge. There's a limit to my comprehension, a limit to my understanding. And the God we worship is infinite. He's infinite in his existence. That is, you can go back Before time began, before there is a universe, before there is planets, before there are people, you can go back to that time before it all began and guess who you will find there? God. That's the only one you'll find there. God. You can go as far into the future as you want. You can go past the end, the annihilation of this earth, not the annihilation of people, the annihilation of the earth. It burns up in in a fire. There's a new heaven and there's a new earth. And guess who you'll find there? God. God's existence is infinite. I'm just going to give you a verse. I'll encourage you to read these verses later as you think about the infinite existence of God. Read Psalm chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 40. Excuse me. Psalm 90. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. God's might is infinite. God's power is infinite. There is no limit to his power. Exodus 15, 11, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? That's Exodus 15, 11. You know what had just happened? The people were praising God because God had just opened up the Red Sea. The Israelites had walked across on dry land. And when the Egyptian chariots tried to follow them, guess what happened? God caused that water to close up and destroy an entire army. Can you imagine being there and seeing that with your own eyes? And thinking, who is like unto thee among the gods? Now, they're not admitting that there are many gods. They're pointing out that the gods of the Egyptians are false gods. They could never do that, but our God can Now, I know, again, at at this point, some of you may be saying, I don't feel like God does that for me. That's because God's plan is always bigger than our plan. 
and I want God to do this for me, and I want him to do it today. I mean, if it would have been up to me, we would have had that transformer pad in July. God says, no, no, I've got a better plan. It's not that God's power is limited. It's that not only is God infinite in his might, God is infinite in his knowledge. Listen to this psalm. He telleth the number of the stars, he calleth them all by their names. He telleth the number of the stars, he calleth them all by their names. Now, if you just do a quick search on, on, on science, you'll find out that astronomers don't even know for sure how many stars there are in our galaxy. And there are multiple galaxies. In fact, there's almost, I'm going to use this term advisedly, an infinite number of galaxies. How would you count all those stars? God not only counts each star, he has a name for each one. Now, I'm not going to do this to you, but imagine if I said, come on up here, come, nope, stand next to me. I want you to tell me the names of all the people here today. Now, tell, I'll tell you, I couldn't do that. My guess is there may be one, two of you that could tell all the names of the people in this room. And God knows the names of all the stars. The next time you look up and you see the Milky Way, you've got to get out of town where the light pollution is non-existent. You look up and you see that Milky Way, that band of stars across there. God knows the name of every single star. And that's just in our galaxy. Our God is infinite in his knowledge. Our God is infinite in his mercy. Infinite in his mercy. Psalm 145, 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. And I've experienced that again this week. I've gone to God and I said, God, here's where I messed up. Here's where I sinned against you. And God said, I forgive you. It's that infinity, that infinite nature that's just beyond our comprehension. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. And when we come to the holy, we say, oh, my knowledge only goes so far. And I have to admit, I don't understand completely. I don't understand God completely. I can use words to describe and yet not truly comprehend. God is infinite, and yet God is also intimate. That is, he's as close to you as you desire him to be. In fact, for those of us that are his children, God lives inside of us. It's an amazing thought. God is immense. He's vaster than our ability, our ability to understand. And yet, he's also immediate. That is, he's right there next to us. God and I communicate without any intermediary except Jesus Christ, who is God. And you too can go directly to the throne of grace. You don't need to come to me. You don't need to go to your friend. You certainly don't need to go to a priest or some other spiritual leader. You can have that direct communication with God. The fear of the Lord is, does not inspire uh, a fear so that we are hesitant to approach God. The fear of the Lord inspires reverence and awe so that we are amazed that we can approach Him at all. So we wonder that he would take time for me, and yet God says, yep, I've got all the time in the world. You can have 
all the attention you need, and so can you, and you, and you, and you, and millions of other Christians all at the same time, in multiple languages. And God doesn't strain his ability. And so when we come to him with that awe and with that reverence, we also come to him to submit to him because he is superior to us, because he is infinite in wisdom and infinite in knowledge and infinite in power and infinite in existence. And you can go on down the line and we say, God, you know better than I do. Now, think about your own prayer life, and everyone's different. And, but often I can divide most Christians' prayers into two categories. There's the type of praying that says, God, don't you realize what's happening? I'm telling you what to do, and you're not listening to me. There's that type of praying. And then there's a type of praying that says, wait on the Lord, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Now, you still want God's will. You still have requests. You still bring things to God. But you know that God has it under control. And you're just trying to cooperate with Him. And then there's a type of praying, you really think God's lost it. And He better pay attention because you're telling Him what to do. This one is not the fear of the Lord. This one is the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. If you want to teach someone how to read, if you want to teach people literacy, um, and I know there are different languages, Caleb, don't, don't bring me all the details, but in English at least, what's the first thing you teach someone when you teach them to read? The alphabet. A, B, C, D. Now, there's syllabaries and actually logograms. Uh, Moses and Grace are here. There's no alphabet in Chinese. So, okay, in Chinese, this illustration breaks down. But in English, the first thing you teach someone is the alphabet, the ABCs. And if they can't get past the ABCs, they're going to find it really difficult to read, aren't they? And in the same way in life, if I can't get past the fear of the Lord, if I can't open my mind to understand from God's Word the knowledge of the holy, I'm never going to get to wisdom, and I'm never going to get to understanding. And that leads me to another thing I want to mention about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord leads us to worship. Worship is to ascribe worth to someone. In biblical terms, worship is to recognize and honor God's worthiness to receive our praise, to receive our gratitude. We can sing praise. We sang four songs today, and we're going to sing a fifth song before we go to the meal. And does that encompass all that can be said about God? No. No, we're going to sing again this afternoon. And we'll come back and we'll sing again on Wednesday night before our Bible study and prayer. We, we do a lot of singing. And all the singing we do is just to exalt God. And to realize that no matter how much singing we do, we'll never really exalt Him fully. We'll just keep trying. We'll just keep doing it. Because He is worthy. The fear of the Lord leads us to worship. Now let me give you the classic event, the classic narrative on the fear of the Lord. And for this, I'd like you to go back to Exodus chapter 1. Hold your place in Proverbs 9. We'll probably get back there, but Exodus chapter 1. And let's look at this illustration from the Bible of the fear of the Lord. This is in the days 
before Moses, the days before Moses, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, have come down into Egypt. They had been living in Canaan. But because of a famine, remember, God had brought Joseph to Egypt and elevated him to a position of power where he could provide for his extended family. And now his 11 brothers, his mother, excuse me, his mother had died. His father, his father's wife came down with the family to Egypt. And now it's been several hundred years and the Hebrews keep getting more and more numerous and the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is bothered by how many Hebrews there are. They're just, they just, they're everywhere. And he's concerned that if a war breaks out or there's some sort of struggle that the Hebrews will side with the other side and he'll lose power. So he comes up with a brilliant plan. Do you remember what his brilliant, Luna, do you remember what his brilliant plan was? Hudson, there he is. Do you remember what Pharaoh's brilliant plan was? Yeah, he made them slaves. And he gave the midwives a very specific command. He said, this is what I want you to do. He says, when you get there and, and they're giving birth, if a boy is born, I want you to kill him. And if a girl is born, you can save him alive. Uh, look with me, Exodus chapter 1. Um, pick it up here in verse 15. And the king of Egypt which is synonymous with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shifra, and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. Now you have to understand, Pharaoh is not, the king of Egypt is not like the U.S. president. or There's no appealing Pharaoh's decision. He's told them what they're going to do. He's not giving them an option. He's not passing a law. He's telling them, you're going to, do, you're going to kill the boys and you're going to save the girls alive. But notice what it says, verse 17, but the midwives feared God. The midwives feared God and did not, as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. You know what the midwives did? They feared God more than they feared man, didn't they? Man was right there. Pharaoh, I mean, he was there. I mean, he could have him killed. He could have him tortured. He could have him thrown into, into prison. I mean, there's a terrible bunch of terrible things, evil things that Pharaoh could have done to make their lives terrible. But you know what they realized? There's a God in heaven, and he's more powerful than Pharaoh is. And because they feared God, they obeyed God rather than men. I, I wonder if the midwives, and the Bible doesn't give a whole lot of explanation, but let's go back to some of those attributes of God we, we, we thought about. I wonder if they realized that God's knowledge was infinite. You know, they might be able to trick Pharaoh. It might take Pharaoh a few months or years, I don't know, before he realized what they were doing, but God was there every single time that a boy was delivered. And he knew exactly, God knew exactly what those midwives were doing. Those midwives feared God and they knew that God's law trumped Pharaoh's law. Pharaoh thought very little of any life that was not related to himself. He definitely thought little of Hebrew life, but even Egyptian life. Think of the plagues. How many Egyptians died 
while Pharaoh hardened his heart and said, no, I will not let those people go. Pharaoh didn't care until what happened? Until his son died. Then it was important. Pharaoh cared very little about life. But you know what? The midwives realized that life comes from God. It wasn't theirs to destroy. And because they feared God, they opened that door to God's blessing. Look with me at verse 21. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. Now exactly what that means is not important. Here's what's important. God did two things. Number one, he protected them from Pharaoh's wrath. Pharaoh could have had them killed, thrown in jail, tortured, terrible things. But it doesn't mention that at all because God protected them. And number two, God gave them houses. He gave them families and he blessed them. And why was God able to bless them? Because they feared God more than they feared men and they obeyed God rather than obey men. They had wisdom because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy is understanding. Now let me bring this home to us and then we'll go back to to um, Proverbs 9, because I want you to see that we have the same problem today. We have a problem that's called abortion, where people say the lives of children in the womb, of unborn children, are not valuable. And we can end them if fill in whatever reason you want. That's not what God says, but that's what man says. Abortion treats pregnancy as if it is a problem to be solved. But pregnancy is not a problem to be solved. It's a life to be cherished. And uh, if you have, if you're a lady and you've gone through an abortion, you realize how destructive that is. And God has mercy for that. And God has grace for that too. But the reason that we lack wisdom as a society is because we no longer fear God. And as long as we keep saying, we don't want God in our thoughts, the Bible says we become fools. Go back with me now to Proverbs chapter 9. Let me show you why I read verses 7, 8, and 9 ahead of verse 10 in Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7, He that reproveth a scorner getteth himself a shame, and he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Notice again, synonymous parallelism. You reprove, you rebuke a scorner or a wicked man, and he doesn't like you. He thinks you're crazy. Verse 8, reprove, Therefore, reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. And then he switches gears. This is, antithetic parallelism, rebuke a wise man and he will love thee. A scorner hates you, a wise man loves you. You give instruction to a wise man and he will be yet wiser. You teach a just man and he will increase in learning. Let me tell you, what is the difference between the scorner and the wise man? The scorner does not fear God and the wise man does. Now the wise man doesn't have complete set of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is only the beginning of knowledge. But if you are a scorner who doesn't fear God, you will never get to wisdom. 
And this is, for those of us who believe that America has a problem, and I believe America has a big problem, let me tell you what the core of it is. It's the rejection of God. We don't fear God. Let me take it a step further. Not just we, Americans don't fear God. Christians don't fear God. And we need to come back to this fear of God and an understanding of the holy. If we're going to have the impact on our nation, on our society, that we want to have. So where are you going to get the knowledge of the holy? Again, spend time in God's word. I know I say this. You probably say every Sunday, you say you need to be reading your Bible. You need to be reading it for profit. Because you do. Please, read your Bible. Spend time. Talk with God. Prayer. Talk with God. Meditate on his word. Expect to see God's hand at work in your life. If I can go back one more time to bitter Christians, sometimes the reason we feel abandoned, the reason we feel uh, betrayed by God, the reason we feel cast aside by God, the reason we feel that way is because we're not looking up and seeing what God is doing in our life. And there have been times I've looked down at the ground and I've crossed my arms and I definitely felt like God had abandoned me. But God hadn't gone anywhere. He's right there beside me. I just didn't want to see it. Expect God to work in your life. A scorner, a scorner cannot learn wisdom. A person who does not fear the Lord cannot begin his journey on the road of wisdom. Can't even start it. How about you? Do you fear the Lord? When's the last time you applied your mind, you, you did your best to to comprehend the holy, to have a knowledge of the holy. Because it says the knowledge of the holy is understanding. When's the last time you sat down and applied your mind to consider his infinite existence or his infinite presence or his infinite knowledge or his infinite mercy or his infinite love? And the more you think about that, the more you realize how limited your understanding is and the more your awe of God increases. And the more that I am amazed that I can even come to him. But you know what God tells me? Come boldly to the throne of grace. I love that verse. Otherwise, I'd be a little bit timid. Can I really talk to God? He says, yes, come boldly to the throne of grace. So as we get to the invitation today, let me ask this question. Is there anyone here today? And I just want you to think in your own minds. I don't need a public response yet. But is there anyone here today who has, up until today, been denying God's existence. Maybe you believe that life is an illusion, it's a hologram, I don't know what you believe, or maybe you don't believe we can even know if there's a God. I didn't set out in this sermon to prove God's existence, and yet I know that the Holy Spirit can do a work in our hearts and convince us of things that we've not considered before. If that's you, then today, for you, today needs to be the day of salvation. When you realize that there is a holy God and he's given us a law to keep and we've all broken that law, we've all sinned, and it's only through Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection that any of us can be righteous. Christians are not Christians because we're good people. Christians are good Christians because we have a loving and a merciful God who saved us. But maybe you're the Christian here today who feels abandoned by God. You feel betrayed, cast off, deserted, 
You feel like God's gone somewhere and left you in the corner? Let me remind you that God hasn't gone anywhere. He's as close to you as he's ever been. But you have to lift up your eyes and you have to reach out your hand and take his. He's not gone anywhere. Turn unto me, James writes. Turn unto me, God says, and I will turn unto you. God hasn't gone anywhere. Last question I want you to consider. Have some of you been fearing man or fearing government more than you've been fearing God? Proverbs tells us that the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. All of us can do better at applying our mind to the knowledge of the Holy so we gain an appropriate fear of God and reach the wisdom that He has for us. Father, thank you uh, for this uh, folks paying attention for the visitors you've brought out. Thank you for the, 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 the group of Christian brothers and sisters who are a blessing to me, praying for me, and then Sunday by Sunday, faithfully here, listening, taking notes. Thank you, Father. Bless them. I want to begin, Father, by praying for those that came this morning and they're not Christians. Maybe they came thinking they were Christians. Maybe they don't understand what a Christian is. Maybe, I don't know. I'm praying, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would bring them a conviction of your sin, of your righteousness, excuse me, of our sin, of your righteousness and your judgment. So if they come, they arrive, they comprehend finally what it means to be rescued from sin, to be saved from sin. I pray for that this morning. I pray for the Christians that have come and and I thank you that they're here, but they're embittered. They're hurt. They feel as if you've abandoned them. Father, open their eyes to the truth that you've not gone anywhere. And that without coming to you, accepting your superiority, accepting your right to rule, your sovereignty in our lives, we can never reach your wisdom. We can never have your understanding. Open their hearts to you once again. And for those of us that are Christians and we just need to reflect on how great you are so that we have once again that awe and that reverence and that amazement that we can even approach you and yet be grateful, sincerely, wholeheartedly grateful that a holy God would forgive us through the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. That we can come to you boldly, not because we're good people, but because you're a great God. Give us again a sense of your greatness. Exalt yourself in our own minds and our own hearts so we approach you with a greater reverence. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.